which type of NP is supposed to work in the ER? That's one question where you start. Is it family? Is it acute care? Part of what we do is, as leaders in this is trying to match the right person too. Because sometimes you can get somebody you can train who doesn't necessarily have the knowledge but has the appropriate, let's say, personality traits that would make them successful in the emergency department. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast, the workforce podcast for EMNPs and PAs. What do we do here? Well, here we navigate the EM labor market, the role of the EMNP and PA, the relationship between clinicians and facility, and all the financial issues that come with it. What's our objective? Simply to share and inform. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. And I am an emergency medicine PA who's been in the business for 20 years, and I'm excited to bring you this podcast. To all the emergency medicine clinicians out there, we know what you go through, and we appreciate you. Today, I'm very happy to bring you our guest, John Canyon, emergency medicine NP. Hello, John. Hello, Mar. How's it going, buddy? It's a good day today. I'm very happy that uh, we were able to snag you uh, for this podcast and share in the contributions you have for the workforce. Before we get going into the questions, uh, John, can you just tell our listeners a brief story of your journey to becoming an emergency medicine NP? I worked as a nurse and I worked in, uh, I did travel nursing for a long time and worked in a variety of areas from ICU to ECU to telemetry to med surge to pediatrics. I mean, the only areas I didn't work is OB and L&D. Ended up in the ER, loved the ER, and I was working in the ER. And uh, as an agency nurse, I realized that I had maxed the potential for my income for my career, and I was still mid-20s, so early 20s. So I decided that uh, it was time to go on. Actually, there was PA students rotating through our ER at the time, and I thought, man, I know most of what they're most of the questions they're being asked, I know the answers to. I thought, man, I can do this. So as I was applying to PA schools, one of the nurses was like, why don't you become an NP? I don't even know what that is. We didn't have any. There was none around where I was. There was none. So I was like, okay, well, I'll apply to both. Whichever one I get in first wins. And as you can tell, I went to NP school instead of PA school. So I got into that one first. So, and I got out, started working in emergency medicine. Since then, I've worked probably 55 ERs and uh, I've done family practice, critical access, hospitalist medicine, and quite a bit. Thank you for that intro. Some of that is going to lead into some of our questions. And so I'll snag one of the things that you talked about. I mean, you talked about here, you'd been in the workforce already and you realized that you had a pretty good handle on nursing and you're watching these, these PA students, these physician assistant students, and you're recognizing gosh, I could probably, not only do I know most of us, I could probably teach these guys a, a lot of the stuff. And then someone tells you about this NP gig, you're like, well, what is that? I've never even heard of that. So now we're talking about somebody who's been in the business for, you know, for a few years, you have your rhythm as a nurse, and even you, uh, with that years of experience, hadn't yet heard of an NP. The reason I bring this up is because I think this is what's unique about the certainly in emergency medicine, but in all specialties too, regarding NPs and PAs, we're a relatively young couple of professions. Back then, at that time, when you were looking into it and said, hey, I might give this a stab, everybody knew what a doctor was. Yep. You wouldn't say, hey, here's a doctor, and nobody would say, well, what is a doctor? But you throw the word NP at, and even if you describe it to them, 
or you went to go work with a doctor, I would imagine there's a handful of doctors that didn't know what to do with the PA or, or NP. So that'll bring us to our first question here. In my experience over the past 20 years, this is some of what, what I've witnessed, either firsthand or indirectly, and I've worked in multiple states. There were some NPs that had great, valuable experiences, EDRNs, before they went to NP school. Some of them were even ED charge nurses. So much of their experience and their knowledge and the skill were transferable and very complementary once they transitioned to the NP role. If they were appropriately matched with patient acuity and good supervision, a good model and a good positive experience, then good things could be expected. However, if they were mismatched with the wrong acuity, not sufficient supervision, or thrown into deep waters with wrong expectations, unfortunately, sometimes that leads to bad experiences. So we'll start with the first question. Do you think that 10, 15 years ago, John, EMNPs contributed to increasing patient access to quality emergency medicine care? Yeah, I was the only one I knew of. So I don't, I really can't save 20 years since it's been, since 2005 since I got out of school. So almost 20 years ago, there weren't any. And uh, did we increase access to care? Absolutely. Quality is another issue, right? And that's something that and still to this day varies wildly from NP to NP because of lack of standardization of education, you know. So you get somebody who's going straight through school and doesn't ever work as a nurse and comes out and struggles mightily. You get somebody who's worked for a long time who comes out and still struggles mightily. You get somebody who works for a long time, like you said, gets appropriate support and does well. People have to understand that, I mean, I know you guys get a better, well-rounded education than we do from a clinical perspective, but when we get out, for EM is not a great place for somebody to work if they don't have a lot of support. Got to have a lot of support, a lot of education, and get them caught up to speed so they can take on the EM role. Would you say that the role of the EMNP has expanded over the past uh, 15 years? And if you do think so, how so? I don't know that the role has really changed much. I'm pretty much doing the same thing I was 20 years ago. I mean, when we came out, we were trained to do everything. So we went everything from the not sick to the critical, and you had to see those patients. And so it really hadn't changed a whole lot. Depends on, I would say it really depends on location. Because I've worked in some places where they just want me to do fast track, some places where they just want me to do a pit model, some places where I do everything. And then some places where I do a mix of whatever that particular doc on that shift wants me to do. So you have to be able to be pliable in your practice and work according to the comforts of whichever physician you're working with sometimes. And then I've worked out in a little bitty critical access place where I'm the only guy in the whole county. Two things that I picked up on that you talked about, one of the keywords was being pliable, which I would say absolutely is a key characteristic for NPs and PAs. If for no other reason you'd mentioned something earlier, that there isn't this universal rigid standardization. And because of that, not only does every site have different needs of, you just went through examples, what do they need from you? But then every supervising physician, either A, may have a different need, or B, they just have a different fundamental of understanding of how can John best help me knock out that waiting room and all the patients in the waiting room. And sometimes they're very well-versed in what NPs and PAs can do but they just have certain thoughts of how they should function. And that's cool. There's a supervising physician. But I think in a lot of cases, especially the younger, new post-residents, they just don't know the full capability of what we can or cannot do. 
Do you think that supervising physicians are challenged, that this is a challenge with providing the best optimal supervision at times, either because they're getting run over by patients in the emergency department or because emergency medicine has changed, that this is a challenge for supervising docs to say, I don't know what kind of supervision exactly Omar needs or what John needs. I guess I'll just leave it to them to let me know when they need something. Does that sound familiar to you? hundred percent. I mean, there's no way to know what anybody needs individually as we don't have standardization of training. And that's the problem. I walked into one ER. First day I sat down with this doc and he's like, you're a nurse practitioner? I said, yes, sir. And he said, we should never hire you. We should only hire PAs. Nurse practitioners are garbage. And I said, well, I don't know who you work, been working with, but it wasn't me. And then a month later, he was requesting to work all his shifts with me. So, and he, now he's one of my best friends. But you know, it's one of those things where there's some internal bias too. So if you work with somebody from either side and you think, oh, well, they're garbage. Well, I don't want to hire any more of those guys anymore. You know, it must be all of them. You know, you attribute one person's lack of knowledge or lack of understanding of emergency medicine to everybody in that field. And it's just not that way. The problem is, again, lack of standardization of training. So we don't have a, a specific set way to train our ER NPs and PAs. And a lot of groups are now addressing that by coming up with training mechanisms for ERs and NPAs and NPs as they onboard them. They have extensive states of training. They want them to go to the EM boot camp or get a postmaster's ENP for us or a, a CAQ for you guys, you know, and they want, to, want, want you to have that. So at least they know you've got some kind of NP training at all. Again, it's just a complete and utter lack of understanding what they do. And then there's a comfort level thing where some people say, well, I'm not comfortable. I'm not comfortable taking care of sick people. I only want to take care of not sick people. Well, the not sick people can be sick too. I picked up two brain tumors in one shift in, an e in a fast track, back to back, you know? I mean, it, you see them everywhere. And they come in, you got to be aware of, of all the options. If you're not, you're going to miss it. And then you get in trouble. Funny on that story, I had a, the neurosurgeon called me that night. I sent him one and I called him back 10 minutes later. I'm like, hey, I got a brain tumor for you. And he's like, yeah, John, I know. You just called me. I'm seeing him right now. I'm like, no, no, no. I got another one. He's like, what? Like, yeah. <laughs> so about four hours later, right before I go, so he calls down to the ER. He's like, hey, John, did you find that third brain tumor? It's like, nah, man, but two out of three ain't bad, right? Yeah, that's a pretty good record. A hundred percent true on, on that last point. You know, it's arguable over a cup of coffee or over good bourbon or beer that relegating oneself only to fast track, at least when they're bringing somebody in a truck and lights and sirens and everybody's gathering, then everybody has a fundamental understanding that, that patient is probably sick. Let's pay close attention. But I'm with you, brother. I worry about the grenade with no pin that's hidden underneath all the boxes that nobody knows about because they were triaged as a level four. And they say, oh, they, they look OK. It's probably no big deal until you just ask a few questions, get a little bit of their history, do a skosh of an exam. You're like, hey, get this guy in a bed right now. This guy is not a level four. You know, it's worse than that is when you're on shift with a doc and the doc goes down and codes. Then what? <laughs> and you're out in an area where there's no backup. There's no hospice. There's no anesthesia. It's just you and a doc. And the doc goes down while they're putting in a central line and codes. What do you do? If you're not comfortable doing that, then it puts you in a really, really bad situation. And then you've got to get a doc in there to help cover the ER while this guy gets shipped out. And the closest doc is 400 miles away. So then you're sitting in a, situ a really bad situation where if you're not comfortable seeing, at least seeing and, and taking care of sick people, it puts you in a really, really, really bad situation where you have a chance for a whole lot of negative outcomes instead of just one. 
You've just touched on something that we're going to visit here in a little bit, and it's what I call the mismatch problem, making sure that the grownups in the room and the leaders and those with experience are matching the right person for the right environment and thinking about this one step ahead scenario that you just described, and not only thinking about, I just need them to knock out fast track, but thinking about this next level of what ifs, and we'll visit that here in a little bit. John, would you say that over the past 15 years, you've seen an increased frequency of NPs performing more procedures where they get called and say, hey, we need you to be a, to help us out more with procedures in, in the ED? 100%, yeah. I think for both of us, I, that just mixes us both in the same group for the, from that perspective. Yeah, a lot more. And honestly, procedures from a technical standpoint are not difficult to perform most of the time not real difficult. It's just a matter of training and, and repetition. I mean, it's just like in the, was it 1940s, docs were the only one who could put IVs in. And now the nurses are doing it, right? So, yeah. I mean, it's a matter of, of risk and, and benefit and training and repetition. And if it depends on the shop too, right? And the busier the sure. shop is, the higher acuity. Well, there's one place where the docs are all RVU based and it makes more sense from an RVU perspective for them to see another patient than to put in a central line because they make more RVUs. So they have us put in there, do all their procedures and they go on and see the next patient. So they miss out on the RVUs from the procedure, but they, get, they generate more overall by seeing more patients. Totally been involved in, in those scenarios, the RVU full, RVU partial, shared RVU and non-RVU. We'll talk about that one as well here in a little bit. Let's talk about the relationship, and we hit on it a little bit already, John, relationship between EMNPs, PAs, and their supervising docs. I think all across the country, NPs and PAs and emergency docs, they're getting along just fine, and they're working together well, by and large. I think as a team of providers, we're at our best when we're united, and I would like to keep it that way. Unfortunately, you know, in society, there's always going to be people with dissenting opinions, and that's cool. That's what makes us diverse. There's some number of considerable voices that have expressed concern over the scope of practice of EMPAs and NPs. I think all professions, lawyers, carpenters, electricians, engineers, PAs, MPs, and doctors, there's always going to be room for improvement somewhere in that profession. However, I think that there have been instances where one or two anecdotes have been used to characterize all NPs and PAs. And you just gave us one example of when you met up with one of your supervising doctors, you ended up being a good friend with. I don't believe that these characterizations have been accurate in a widespread fashion. Can you share your thoughts on this? The problem is, I think it goes back to lack of standardization and training for what we're doing. And the problem is, if you get a residency training board certified EM doc, you know what they can and can't do. For instance, which type of NP is supposed to work in the ER? That's one question where you start. Is it family? Is it acute care? You know, I can go on this rabbit soapbox all day long. It's one of my favorite topics. But you get a PA who's fresh out of school. Are they appropriate to come into the ER? You get a PA who's been in general surgery for 10 years. Are they appropriate to come to the ER? You get a PA who's been working in family practice for 10 years. Are they appropriate to come into the ER and see sick people? Part of what we do is, as leaders in this is trying to match the right person, too. Because sometimes you can get somebody you can train who doesn't necessarily have the knowledge but has the appropriate, let's say, personality traits that would make them successful in the emergency department. Sure. That makes sense. And then the, the coordination between us and docs, it's all on the individuals, I think. I don't think there's any place I've worked that's been overtly hostile. Never worked in a place that's been overtly hostile. I've never worked in a place where I've felt uncomfortable talking to my docs. I've never worked in a place that I've felt uncomfortable 
talking to my colleagues at all, NPs, PAs, never felt, never felt uncomfortable going to anybody. And I would never want anybody feeling uncomfortable coming and talking to me. There's been some people I don't like. Yeah, sure. I mean, but that's more personality thing than anything else, you know? You don't get along with everybody in this world, no matter how nice you are, you know? I mean, there's going to be people that don't like you, people you don't like. That part doesn't bother me too much. But it's me, it's more about the independence of practice. When I go to a place and I can't practice independently, if they want me to act like a resident or a student, I'm not going to work well in that environment because I'm not going to agree with how you skin the cat necessarily. Like I may do it a little different. Like I do one thing that's interesting on uh, pediatric head injuries that are PCAR negative. I order two view skulls on the mom, on the patient. And then I go in and, and I tell mom the x-ray looked great. I didn't see anything bad. You can go home. I don't even discuss PCAR with them because they don't understand. All they're going to hear is, oh, you just don't want to do what's right for my, my baby versus me going in going, oh, honey, that x-ray looked great. I didn't see anything bad. And then let them go home. Now they feel comforted that I, quote, did something, you know? Yeah. And the, the radiation exposure is negligible. Now, you and I know that finding a skull fracture on a two-view skull is what? One in 150 right. bazillion or whatever. But I mean, it's just, the chance of you finding it is non-existent, but it makes them feel better. It makes them feel like we've done something for the patient. And sometimes we have to practice that art as much as we do the science and the business side of medicine. Yeah. And to that point, uh, before we move on to the next question, I think that all players, NPs, PAs, docs, if they've traveled around the country, they would have to admit that there's a standard of care. Absolutely. Things, you know, should uh, be science-based, but to practically take care of a community, I think all folks would agree that your practice is also shaped by where you work and what part of the country, what community. There's different expectations. Because as you said, you could easily be seen as somebody who doesn't give a damn, doesn't care, or you could be seen in any other dimension. But I'm actually glad that you mentioned that because I have found working in different parts of the country that practice is shaped by where you work and what community you serve. Also changes your order sets too, man. Sure. I mean, you work in an area where, where there's a high specific type of population. Like I worked in one town where we never saw syphilis ever, ever. I mean, when we finally got a case, it was a big enough deal that the CDC came down and tracked it down. That was kind of a big deal. Whereas versus if you work in other towns, syphilis is endemic to the area. So it's just part of your treatment for somebody that comes in. Anybody comes in with a lesion, you automatically assume. You're right? Yep. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure, I am the Vice President of Advanced Practice Provider Services at Ivy. And I joined because I was frustrated with the emergency medicine job search. And I'm guessing you might be frustrated too. I also believe that EMNPs and PAs have and will continue to provide valuable contributions to the ED by expanding access to quality emergency medicine care to patients. I am very passionate that when the right EMNP and PA are matched with the right ED, then emergency physicians and EMNPs and PAs create a most powerful team best equipped to tackle the modern and future challenges of emergency medicine. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the Emergency Medicine Workforce, where you can find all 5,549 EDs, filter by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure, and you pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io. 
And when you find the right job for you on Ivy, we will send you a bottle of champagne to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, let's get back to the show. Following up on, on this issue, you know, ab- about supervision, and we talked that so much depends on who the individual is. I think that the best supervisory model in an ED is one that's tailored to the experience and the skill level of that NP or that PA. You touched on that a little bit about it. The junior clinicians, they need to have easily accessible supervising physician that's responsive, gives them periodic feedback of their performance, and doesn't make them feel stupid for asking questions. The mid-grade and the senior APPs need to be given a little bit room to flex what they know and have their advanced contributions taken into consideration. And then with the last group, the senior APPs, they need to be considered for possible leadership positions when there's some within the staffing group or the hospital or the hospital itself or the department. Examples of that are being on credentials committee when when they develop, well, what are the credentials that we're going to give APPs? I find it interesting that, you know, in lots of places, physicians only decide this and there isn't any APP in there to just speak up and give a little bit of flavor, just give a little bit of input as to what should be on there, what shouldn't be on there, what should they explore for, for next year. What are your thoughts on this, this idea that I pose about different supervisory models for different levels of skill, experience, and knowledge? I think it's reasonable, and it goes back to what the most of the M groups are doing right now, where they're having onboarding processes for their new grads, which is 100% the right way to go. But I also think that there needs to be an onboarding process in the department where the newer people need to have their patients backed up, all of their patients, for at least three months, where they're followed up and seen, and that way they can discuss and go over and treat them like a resident. When I came out and I started practicing, that's what the guys I worked with did. They treated me like a resident. I saw every single patient. I did every single procedure. I did everything. And it was hard. It's hard work, man, because I had to see every patient that walked in the ER. I was not expected to carry my own load because they were expected to make sure I was doing the right job. So for the first three months, it was horrible. Saw every patient that walked in the ER. But the plus side of that is once I started practicing on my own, it taught me efficiency taught me how to see people in an efficient manner and still get the work done and still rule out the life-threatening emergencies. So, I mean, that kind of thing is helpful. And then as you progress in experience, the amount of supervision you require should drop. But again, if we went back to standardization of education going into emergency medicine, then that first part might not be necessary, right? But I think for sure, the experienced people need to be sitting on credentialing committees, need to be uh, need to have roles in the EM groups. And most of the EM groups are moving that way. They have lead APPs, they call them, or lead PA slash NP, whatever their terminology is, since there's not a great all-encompassing term right now that doesn't offend somebody. And those roles are, are necessary because you get into things like, for instance, what can a family nurse practitioner do versus an acute care nurse practitioner versus a P, you know, that kind of thing. And a lot of times, like for instance, I'm family trained. I did get my emergency certification a couple years ago, but up till then I was only family trained. So they would look at me and say, he's family trained. Well, this other guy's family trained and he wants to come into the ER. He should be able to do what John does. Well, not exactly. You know, there's significant difference in training and experience there that you have to understand is, has value. And a lot of times we as leaders need to understand that and understand that there's significant difference in value. There's one group I know of that brings people in and pays them half rate until they pass their 90-day orientation period. 
I mean, they pay them to train them, but they, if they don't pass their orientation period, they fire them. I know, I know several people who've been terminated at the end of it because they just weren't cut out for emergency One good thing that you mentioned just now in this response, and I made a note, you touched on this before in one of your previous responses. One of your previous responses, you talked about potential bias about being underqualified. I'd like to talk about the other side of the coin, and you just touched about it now. You actually, you'd mentioned it earlier before. You, you mentioned yourself, your years of experience and your family trained and a potential colleague that also has those initials after their name, but they don't have the experience that you do. There's a risk of a bias of thinking that everybody is overqualified, that just the same initials as, I guess you can do everything that John does. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. John, what you don't see behind his name and his credentials is that he's been doing this for years. Now that he shares the same letters behind his name, but somebody else, and they just walked in from doing family practice clinic. And, you know, same thing, uh, you know, with PAs, like do not make any assumptions. The reason I bring this topic up, John, I'd like to hear some commentary from you is because uh, there's two spectrums that I look at on the spectrum of knowledge, skills, and ability. We talked a little bit about the seniors and the mid-rangers, but I'm very cautious over 20 years of practice, 19 of those years being an employer, looking after the younger generation that gets thrown into deep waters. And they just assume, well, I guess a PA is a PA is a PA, or MP is an MP is an MP. And then it's a bad setup. They flounder. It's not their fault. Docs don't have the time for the supervision because, uh, well, John's on shift. He doesn't need that kind of supervision from me. And then they may have a bad outcome or they're inefficient. So the patient's mad. The facility's mad. The staffing group is mad. The individual feels, look, I'm not stupid. You know, you, you threw me into this job. I'm just doing what you told me to. And it's just a bad setup for everybody. Can you talk a little bit about that, about, about some of the junior clinicians being thrown into waters? That it's not fair to them. They don't belong there. Well, I was very, very, very particular on who I hired and how I hired people. Um, very, very particular. There was one, uh, one nurse that, I, that worked with us that was an exceptional nurse, very, very good. Um, but he, as he was training, it was evident that he thought he knew emergency medicine inside and out. And it was evident that he did not. And so we didn't hire him, made him go do something else first. And then a couple of years later, we ended up having a slot open up and he came back and he's like, yeah, I'd really like to come back. And I said, well, all right, you have to go get your emergency certification in order for me to hire you. And for the first three months, we're going to watch you like a hawk. And I want you to ask questions on everything. And after that, he said, man, I'm really, really glad that you didn't hire me initially because I probably would have killed somebody. And that's the kind of thing you have to watch for is the initial training period when we brought in new people. We got all the docs together and said, hey, everybody okay with bringing in a new grad? Because we bring in the new grad, there's going to be extra work for three or four months while we try and get them up to speed. You guys have to be on board with this and understand that you can't let anything slide while these guys are on shift. And it goes same with the, the PANP group. We got to watch these guys. We got to protect them. We got to help them out. And like I said before, there's just some people who weren't meant for the emergency department. You know, there's some people who from a from a personality standpoint or a efficiency standpoint are not, they're just not designed for the kind of work that we do. And it's not, an, it's not a bad thing. It's not a knock on anybody. It's just, they're not designed to do this. Just like I'm not designed to stay in family practice long-term. I can do it short-term, but long-term, it's just not a good fit for me personality-wise. I'm more of a Forrest Gump guy, you know, like the ER, what's the patient? It's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get when you walk in the room, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Let me touch on a, a topic briefly. I'd mentioned before in my remarks, I truly believe, this is sincere, that by and large, all across the country, 
PAs and NPs and, and their supervising docs, they're, they're getting along just fine. They're working side by side in the trenches. They're happy to see each other. Oh, thank goodness John is on shift. We, we got a fighting chance today. You said you'd become, you know, good friends with one of your supervising docs. I, I've been very blessed more than I deserve. Be really good friends with supervising docs, celebrate kids' birthdays together, weddings, vacation together, comforted each other through the loss of a parent or illness of a family member. About a year ago in the spring, ASAP, American College of Emergency Physicians, issued a white paper, and they talked about their position on the EM practice of, of NPs and PAs. And in it, what they expressed was that they thought that every patient that gets discharged from the emergency department should be, should be seen by a supervising physician. I usually find in life that when there's a difference of opinion on an issue, that the solution is going to be found somewhere in the middle, maybe not at the 50-yard line, maybe at the 20-yard line of one side or the other, but it's rarely found on one extreme uh, or the other. My first instinct when I heard that it was, I'm not even insulted by that. I just don't see that as being possible. I could go through an entire shift, and the only words I exchange with my supervising doc is, hey, you want to go get coffee? And, then, and that might be all we talk about. Statistically, it's impossible though, right? Because there's what, 10,000 ER docs and 5,900 ER, or there's like, wait, no, there's enough ER docs to cover one 12-hour shift for every ER in the country. That's it. So there's, it's not, not statistically possible. And while, you know, I get peeing around your territory and trying to market, I understand that. I mean, you know, I get it. And with our lack of standardization of training, I understand. I understand the concern. I understand the concern 100%, but man, the most patients I've seen in a shift is 77. So good luck seeing your, your 30 and then my 77 on top of it. It's a good point. And back to your point about uh, standardization, I, I mentioned in my earlier comments, there's always going to be room for improvement. I'm never going to ever argue against education, ever. It'd be stupid to argue. But I will say what 20 years has taught me is education comes in many forms. It doesn't have to be didactic with a postgraduate degree that costs somebody another thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. Sometimes education can come with targeted CME, and you mentioned it, and a lot of groups are being smart about this. And they're saying, we're gonna take you through EM Boot Camp 1, EM Boot Camp 2. ASEP actually, for about two years or a year and a half, did a ASEP Academy of APPs, phase one, two, and three, and I was one of the nerds you know, who, who did that. So there's different avenues of getting this education. It doesn't have to be only in one way. If there was a goal or an objective to say, starting July 1st, NPs and PAs cannot work in the emergency department unless they have X standardization of care, whatever that looks like, John, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. Yeah, for sure. But there's folks just trying to put their kids through college, paying off mortgages. And there's folks that say, I'm doing just fine. I don't know what's going on on the national debate stage. Me and my docs are getting along fine. They don't tell me I need anything else. I do. I keep up on CME. I keep up on changes and I'm fine. So don't make me change. Give us some, some thoughts about the overall landscape of this debate. Well, I think that long-term what it needs to be is like a grandfather thing, right? So you go to like at a certain point, I don't know, let's say, what are we, 23, right? Let's say by 2030, every new NP or PA who comes into the emergency department has to have XYZ training right? X number of hours in emergency medicine has to have X number of intubations, X number of chest tubes, you know, that kind of thing, X number of central lines, whatever, whatever we're going to do for the training. So that way we can say, when I hire somebody who's has emergency medicine training, I know what I'm going to get. 
Now, that also leaves options for the supervising docs to utilize them in whichever capacity they feel like they need in whatever shop that they're in. But it also gives the comfort of knowledge because oftentimes the ER docs are the responding to the codes in the hospital. So again, you have somebody who's not trained, you have an ER doc who goes to a code in the ICU and a code walks in the door. What do you do? Do you not care for the patient? I mean, you're the most trained person there. Do you go, well, your honor, I just didn't feel like I could do it. You know, I mean, yeah. how do you defend yourself from a legal perspective working in the emergency department and not being able to do basic ACLS protocols, you know? Yeah. I mean, I just, or ATLS, if you've got a trauma that comes in, you have to be able to do that. Now, whether or not that care is directed by a doc or not, that's a whole different conversation. And it probably, most of the sick people probably should be seen by them for sure. But you got to train your guys in order to be able to do this because, as you know, it happens sometimes and it happens a lot. And, you know, you get into a situation where you just don't have enough qualified people to take care of all the sick people who are coming in. So you have to get the next level to take care of them. And we're that army. We're the guys who are, who are there to do that. And if we can't do that, then it puts the ER in an awkward situation as well. I like all of my guys to be trained to do that. I like all of them to be able to put in central lines. I like all of them to be able to intubate. I like all of them to be able to do conscious sedation. I like all of them to be able to reduce stuff. I like all of them to be able to put in chest tubes and help. If a major trauma comes in and the doc's busy doing procedures, he's not able to use his brain to work through the process because he's focused on a task, a task that can easily be achieved by one of us doing it very easily. Sure. And at the end of the day, their brains are the value, right? Yep, could not have said that better. I talked before about being very protective about the junior clinicians not being put in positions. And we followed up with, you know, uh, your commentary about standardization and saying, hey, if you're going to work in the ER, you want people to be trained in certain stuff. Now, going to the other side of the spectrum, then I become very protective about people who are highly skilled, highly educated. So let's say we, we've waved our magic wand and we've converted everybody over. So now we have this army of these highly skilled NPs and PAs that can central line it, intubate it at a moment's notice. They can truly, sincerely uh, help out their doc in a trauma. Then for those folks, I want to make sure that they're getting compensated appropriately because they're doing that job. This army exists because for whatever reason anybody wants to opine, you can't get an emergency medicine physician there. You can't get them there because they don't want to work there or because you can't afford to pay them. Work. Whatever the case is, we exist because somebody else won't go do a job there. And that's a very, very value-added attribute. And those folks should be getting paid differently than when you and I were coming up in the ranks. The one thing that we don't, that a lot of groups don't do now is pay people differently because they feel like, well, you're doing the same job. But are you? No. Are you really? If you're not, if you're not on the same level, are you really doing the same job? Probably not. And again, there's groups that bring in people for the first three months and pay them at a half wage or whatnot as training. I think that's very viable. I think you should tier step people or pay them based on what their productivity is. I mean, it's very simple to come up with an RVU calculator based on someone's productivity and get an idea over the year what their salary should be. It doesn't even have to be a product daily productivity or a monthly productivity or anything like that. You can just base it off of what their productivity is. And somebody who does more procedures has more value than somebody who does not. Somebody who sees sicker patients has more value than somebody who does not, unless the person who does not sees more volume. You know, it's, it's all pretty easy calculable based off of RVU rates and, 
and procedures and all that. Something's very, very, very simple to calculate. We've done it hundreds of times. I just got off a contract call before we did this. Yep, I agree. That's definitely an avenue that can be uh, fully exploited. John, as, as we start coming to close here, tell us some misconceptions and myths about MPs or things about them in the emergency department that you think most people probably don't know that would surprise them to learn? Well, the, again, the variation in training, right? It's just the problem from a physician and even a PA standpoint is you, y'all's training is very standardized and very regimented. Your, your clinical rotations are set up for you for the most part, with the exception of exceptional rotations that you volunteer for. You guys have your, your rotations are set up. You go to your rotation, you do your month-long rotation, you go to the next rotation, you do your month-long rotation. Ours is not that way. Essentially, we have to beg people to train us. And there's no academic supervision of clinical training. So you really have no idea what you're getting when they come out. So you can't say one same credential equals another because they don't when they come out. Have to understand that if you're going to hire an NP, you need to ask clinical questions when you hire somebody, period. It needs to be part of your interview process as clinical questions. One of my favorite clinical questions to hire somebody in the emergency department is, what's the most important question you need to ask somebody who has a puncture wound on their foot? And as you and I both know, is were they wearing a shoe? A shoe. Most people's first answer is diabetes because they don't know that pseudomonas lives in the glue in the shoes and it changes what antibiotic you have to give. And then if they don't understand that, they end up, the patient gets pseudomonal infection, osteo, and loses half their foot. So, you know, things like that. And there's a bunch of other ones. I can give you all my interview questions, not online anyways. We can talk about that. <laughs> but you got to gotta get some of these tricks for people. They don't want to yeah, have yeah, them yeah. all the answers before they come in to interview. But, uh, yeah, you're right. You know, things like that are helpful. And the other thing is lack of standardization, understanding that we're not the same. We're not, not even close to the same. And there's going to be a wide variance in our clinical expertise, our clinical knowledge, and our um, clinical ability. And expecting them to be the same is not, not reasonable. If you're going to hire people, you need to have, have the expectation that there's going to be some training involved. Even with experienced people, unless I know them personally, I am very cautious when we hire somebody. And I, like I said, I do an extensive clinical interview that I want to know that they're able to actually care for my patients. And I don't have to stress about about there being negative outcomes or complaints, or they don't understand MIPS criteria or throughput times or door-to-dock times, things that are essential, essential, essentially essential knowledge in emergency medicine at this point. They're all things that we have to be aware of. This is good information. I, I meant to mention earlier, we have podcast listeners, this is crazy, in eight other countries other than the U.S. that are listening. So uh, this is good for them to learn you know, if they're thinking about coming here or they just want to know, hey, what's it like in the U.S.? Lastly, what kind of advice would you give for junior EMNPs? They're going to inherit this landscape. You and I are likely on our last lap and younger folks, they just have a different world of emergency medicine than what you and I grew up in. What kind of advice would you give? Learn, learn, ask, always ask. It's always better to ask than not to ask. Look at all your films. I can't tell you how many things I've caught that have been missed. You know, I've caught a brain tumor that was missed on two different head CTs within six months. You know, you have the distinct advantage of actually examining and just talking to the patient. 
to be able to see what's going on with the patient. So when you get a report back and it doesn't make sense, ask, look at the report, call the radiologist. It might be a benign finding that you see, but you'll never know if you don't ask. And you need to ask. You need to look at all your reports. Everything that comes back, you're responsible for. So why would you not look at every single image that you're responsible for? It doesn't make any sense to me. So every single image I order, every single CT, every single MRI, every single ultrasound, and ultrasound by far and away is not my best ability. I'm getting better at it as it's becoming more pronounced in emergency medicine. It was like a Warshak test there for a little while, you know, where I couldn't yep. recognize, like, it looks like a butterfly, you know? <laughs> I remember. I yeah. really see what that is, but. You know, I'm getting better at it as the time goes on, but I didn't grow up with it. So I didn't, I wasn't trained on it. So it's, this is one of my weaker spots as ultrasound. I'm getting better at it. I can do, I can do some stuff now that I couldn't do before and I'm getting better, but I'm not, I'm not great. Like I, I won't rule out a, a gallbladder with ultrasound. It's not something I'm good at. I won't rule out an appy, but I can, you know, I can see retinal detachments and I can do, you know, trauma, trauma evals and stuff like that, you know, and and uh, thoracentesis, paracentesis with ultrasound, ultrasound-guided stuff is not a problem, but you know, it just takes time. And again, getting used to stuff. And if you're new to EM, read Ted Nelly's, it's the M Bible, or Rosen's if you prefer, even though Rosen got censured by ASAP. Uh, I go with Ted Nelly's because of that. A <laughs> you know, little bit of bias there. And I grew up on it. I was trained on it. So I've got a little bit of bias towards Ted Nelly's. I like the way it's laid out better. I like the format of the book a little better than Rosen's. It's personal, personal preference. If you like Rosens, learn Rosens. You need to know it front to back, cover to cover. Um, there's a nice, I think uh, Roberts has a EM procedure book, which is nice to know. The other thing is go to conferences, go to procedures, go to cadaver labs, learn this stuff, get used to doing it, get used to seeing the normals and not normals, right? The most important thing is recognizing abnormals. Not necessarily recognizing what it is, but recognizing that it's abnormal. Hey, this isn't right. I had a patient come in the other day with chronic back pain and she had pain that radiated down her sciatica. And she says, when she stands up, the pain gets better. When she sits down, her entire leg goes numb. And I said, you mean down the back of your leg to your foot? She goes, no, the entire leg all the way around. It's like all the way around. Like that doesn't make any sense. No nerve does that. Like you're, you're, you're like the whole thing. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whole thing all the way around. That didn't make any sense. So I CTA'd her and she had a clot in her, her aorta. So when she, when she sat down, it was, you know, made a difference. So, you know, it's one of those things where you just, the patients are trying to tell you what's going on. It's your job to be able to translate what they're telling you and determine whether or not it's an emergency. And for them, the new people, remember, the goal of emergency medicine is not final diagnosis. The goal is disposition, appropriate and efficient disposition. Worked critical access one time, had a hip fracture, transferred in eight minutes from arrival. So she was same level mechanical fall. They came in short and rotated. I told radiology, I told EMS, don't take her off the cot to shoot a picture. If it's broken, she's leaving. And sure enough, she had a had hip fracture. I'm like, I'm not going to keep that here. What am I going to do with that? Yeah. Is it, well, you're not going to do any more work? No, it's a waste of time. Needs to get to the tertiary facility. Had them transferred in eight minutes. Once you have disposition, you're done. Dispo the patient, you know, whatever yeah. it is, as long as it's appropriate, very like-minded. It's a, a little bit of a taste on standard language, I would tell PA students, and, and even for that matter, junior ones. And I would say, listen, there's many dimensions to our job. One dimension is you're a traffic cop. And as soon as you click on a patient, you're going to determine their disposition. They're either going home, they're getting admitted slash transferred, or they're going to the morgue. Let's discount the third one right now and hopefully not do that one. So you have two major tracks you have to decide. 
And now you have to use your diagnostic skills, your physical exam, the history, what they're going to tell you to decide which pathway they're going to go. And along the way, they get hugs and drugs and, and pictures. But really, the ultimate destiny here is a disposition. And that's your job. So very similar take on your words. John, as, as we come here to the conclusion, I ask all of our guests, what book or movie would you recommend to our audience? It, it doesn't have to have anything to do with medicine at all whatsoever. <laughs> My life has been upside down at the moment. I've not actually been, uh, been able to do a whole lot of outside reading. I, uh, I read for pleasure when I fly. And uh, I watch for pleasure. I don't do any external studying unless it's CME related anymore. When I first got out and first started working, I Ted Nellies every day until I felt like I had it memorized. And uh, then it was uh, after that, after the first six months of practice, I, I look stuff up if I don't know it when I get home and that's about it. I don't, uh, don't really spend a lot of time on, you got you to gotta recharge, man. You got to recharge and let loose and, and get ready to go back for another hard shift because our jobs aren't easy. So. Anything you can do that's not self-help, top 10 ways to do anything, any of that stuff's okay. I, I watched this, uh, there's a docu-series right now on Netflix on chimpanzees. I've been watching that one. It was called Chimp Empire. It's okay. It's kind of <laughs> interesting. But it's all right. I mean, I guess the last book I read was Dune. That was uh, probably a couple months ago. And I've been been flipping through it on my plane rides back and forth to work, so... You got to gotta recharge. So spend your time off work recharging. Don't spend your time going over cases. That's another thing for the new people. Drop your work at the door. When you walk out, you're done for the day. You don't pick that stuff up. Don't worry about it. Don't stress about it. Know that you did the best you could while you had the patient there. And know that there's nothing else you could have done. And you did everything you possibly could for the patient, did your best, to, then you did, you did the right thing. And sometimes you're going to miss. You're not going to hit everything. You're not going to bat a thousand. Nobody does. It's impossible to even think that. But do the best you can and ask questions if you don't know. And make sure you document your help. Remember, this is a specialty of medicine. It's not all of medicine. There's a reason there's specialists. Punt when you need to. Don't hesitate. We got help for all kinds of reasons. Punt, ask. All it's going to do is help you. All it's going to do is help the patient. Every once in a while, you get some pretty good education from the specialists too when you call them. Like, oh, no, man, that's something to worry about. It's fine. Or, hey, this is a pretty interesting deal. You know, I mean, you get some, get some interesting educational points out of it, which is really helpful for your future practice because, you know, in two months, you'll see that case again, and then you'll know what to do. Yep, that's for sure. You have extensive history. You interviewed, hired, trained, developed people. If somebody would like to get a hold of you, how could they get a hold of you? Facebook is a good place. Just John Canyon. I'm in a, all the Facebook groups, the ER groups, DM me, PM me, whatever you call it. It's fine. I do uh, videos on YouTube occasionally, JC the MP. Um, you can email me, JC the MP at yahoo.com. I'm very, very happy to help anytime. I'm happy to mentor people. I'm happy to give advice. I'm happy to listen to you, bitch. If you just want to complain to somebody who's outside your group, and you need, you need somebody to listen, to listen to you. I'm happy to talk to anybody, anytime. I think as a profession, we have to share our experiences and share our ups and downs. And sometimes you just need somebody who you don't know, who is outside your group, who you know won't say anything to anybody in your group because they live in a different state or a different time zone or whatever. And you just need to vent a little bit. And then you need another perspective on stuff. I'm happy to give those. I'm a nice guy, except on Tuesdays, you know. Got to have a day, right? I understand, man. I understand. 
Lastly, who would you recommend we interview next, John? Mm. Well, that's a really good question. I mean, to me, what's interesting is I would look for uh, some of the residency developers, like these residency developers, and I would ask them why. Why are you developing these residencies? And I think you're going to come back to the similar stuff that we talked about today, but I think it's very interesting. I think uh, it would be an interesting thing, Omar, is interviewing a, a new grad like their first month, and then probably six months later and see, see what they've gone through. It'd be an interesting one too, you know? I mean, it'd be an interesting one to do. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that would be fun. But from a personal standpoint, man, there's just, a, I mean, just a, an absolute plethora of people you could use. I mean, there's a lot of people in, in Schumacher. I've been with them for a long time. A lot of people in Team Health, a lot of people in Envision. I would talk to all the regional directors and you know, just get them to talk to you and, and tell you about what's going on in their lives and how, how their lives are changing with MIPS criteria and, and how they're approaching the new hiring. Because in one of our groups, we fired 80% of the new grads because they just couldn't keep up. And that was prior to the introducing the training stuff. And then we started introducing the training stuff. And I don't know what it is after that. I'm assuming they've, they've studied it, but I don't, I don't have that personal information, but I'm assuming it's gotten better because they're continuing to do that, continuing to develop education, which is super helpful. I mean, you got to gotta get these people where they can work and not miss the bad stuff, you know? Yep. Totally understand. John, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. I think that you gave us a unique perspective, not just on your experience, a number of years of experience, but what you've seen in your practice and how you see the landscape of emergency medicine. So thank you very much for joining us, John. Anytime, man. Anytime you want to talk again, just hit me up. You know how to get a hold of me. Yep. Sounds good. Folks, we've been listening to John Canyon, emergency medicine, NP extraordinaire. I would like to thank our podcast producers, the great team at Earfluence. And finally, a big thanks to you, the clinician. For over 20 years, I worked with you. I learned from you. I've been inspired by you. I know the sacrifices that you and your families have made. I know that challenges that you face, and more importantly, I know your value to the market. Thank you all for listening to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. I am Omar Nava. We'll catch you at the next episode, and don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app.